Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Decoded. I'm Sydney Lai, the host of this show. And in this season, we are exploring how different developers, creators build their toolings, their projects, and bring them to market. I really want to encourage devs to be building. And so I would highly recommend you join us at our upcoming conference. We have a developer conference happening in November. And so I will put in the show notes tickets. They are free. We have a developer conference where you will learn how to build different types of applications, software architecture, and it's going to be a great time. So feel free to join us. The conference is called OSDC or the OutSystems Developer Conference. Now, if you are joining us this season, which you are currently, then this is going to be a really great season of just exploring with other developers how they brought their ideas to life, essentially. And I am speaking with Cortland Allen today. He is a software engineer from MIT, currently at Stripe. If you like to spend your nights and weekends tinkering and building, you have probably heard of Indie Hackers. Cortland Allen is the founder of Indie Hackers. And so let's just dive right in. Hey, Cortland, thank you so much for joining today. It's so great to be able to have a conversation with you, not just listening to your podcast episodes. I've been listening to you for several years now. So thank you so much for being able to join today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I I would say I have been following your journey, not just as another developer, but also someone who is a huge fan of building. So as I wanted to say, Cortland, you are the host of Indie Hackers, the podcast. But before that, you also built Indie Hackers, the website. And I really wanted to understand your transitional state as a software engineer coming out of MIT and then really moving into not just a developer, but as a builder, as a hacker. What was that like that mental transitional period and maybe also from a skill set perspective as well? Yeah, I think when I was in college, I was pretty sure that I wanted to be, as you put it, a builder. There are things that I wanted to create. There are things that I thought should exist in the world. And I thought of software engineering as a skill set that would help me create those things rather than as like the core of who I am, if that makes sense. It's sort of a means to an end rather than the end itself. And so right out of college, the first thing I did was start a string of failed startups (laughs) from 2009 when I graduated up to 2016 when I started Indie Hackers. Project after project, startup after startup. But kind of my mindset was that I knew from talking to friends, I knew from talking to others who were software engineers, that no matter how good you are as a programmer, no matter how skilled you are, at the end of the day, you're probably still going to be at a company working for the man, so to speak. And you can be brilliant. You can be creating the algorithms that Google is using to generate billions of dollars, but they're probably only going to pay you a tiny fraction of that. Like they capture most of the value that you create and you can't get very much of it for yourself. Probably somebody's going to tell you what to work on and what hours you need to work on on it and who you're going to work with and where you need to be. And there's all these different things that just didn't really jive with me as a pure software engineer. And so I thought like, how do I battle against this force of like wanting to have my freedom? wanting to be sort of self-determined and be able to use my skills as a developer to create the life that I want to live and build the things that I want to build. Uh, And the only path that I really saw 
was basically the path of an indie hacker to follow this process of coming up with an idea and identifying a customer and then using my skills as a software engineer to sort of build those products and those services and those apps and then just sell it directly to a customer without me having to have a boss or a company that I work for. And so you alluded to sort of what skills that I develop. Well, a lot, because <laughs> when you go that route, you kind of have to wear every hat. You have to know how to code front end and back end. You have to have some design chops. You have to have some management chops and marketing chops and whatever you can't do, you probably got to find somebody else to help you. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you touched on is there's many paths to becoming a builder. There's many paths to becoming a developer. One of the things that you mentioned was sometimes that, at least for you, the, let's say, going a traditional path of being a developer and air quotes, working for the man, that wasn't exactly your path. And I think that when I was I was always a lurker lurker on Indie Hackers. I didn't really say much, but I pretty much devoured every episode of your podcast, would read every blog post, or not blog post, but like the threads, right? And I think, and please correct me when I, if I'm wrong, something that I kind of noticed was I still think that some of those who were in your forums or building in your community were actually still devs and they were working at maybe at a fang company or, you know, Apple or Google, or maybe working in a traditional company that was not a tech company. So I actually want to pull on that thread really quick because we can dive into building side projects. There's, you've shared a lot in terms of, of just like indie hackers, but I'm going to touch really quick on maybe sometimes developers that we don't see, but I saw a little bit in the forms where, like I said, developers who worked at Google or, or maybe, you know, a bank or whatever. And, and with those devs, I guess, what were some of your impressions in terms of how they were building either externally, like nights and weekends, or were there any projects that you saw that they were able to bring into their workflow as well? How do they manage, like, what kind of inspiration they can bring into teams that they work at or just, you know, whatever, like whatever side projects they want to build? Let's start with that. I think that's a great question. I think sort of prototypical indie hacker is a software engineer. They are working at like a big tech company. And they've kind of gone through a period of disillusionment where like, you know, like they're usually getting paid very well. They feel a lot of confidence that like if they were to take some time off and start a project and it doesn't work out, they could probably just go get a job elsewhere, which I think is awesome to have that, that confidence because it really frees you to try things and take risks because your risks really aren't that risky. And so a lot of the indie hackers on the forum are people who have quit their jobs like me. Like at some point I had a contracting gig, <laughs> then I decided to take my savings and quit and work on projects full time. But a lot of people are also those who are working on side projects on the side of their gig at Google or Facebook or wherever they're working. And there's a bunch of different strategies for how you can do this successfully. I'm a huge proponent of this path. I don't think you need to completely dive in the deep end, quit your job, and bet it all on red. I think it makes a lot of sense to sort of gradually on the side of your job work on a side project. And the reason why I think a lot of people don't do this is because it feels like there's not enough time. It feels like, okay, well, I would work on that side project if I only had time, but like, you know, I've got a family, I have kids, I have hobbies, I have friends, I have all this work to do for my normal job. Like, when am I going to find time for a side project? I have to quit my normal job to do that. But the reality is that if you're working as a software engineer, you probably have a lot more money than you have time. You have a consistent salary. You just don't have a ton of time. And so what you can do is use some of that money to help yourself get a head start. For example, I interviewed Rob Walling, who was working as a software engineer. And he got started on his projects back, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago by literally buying companies, buying like tiny companies for like $10,000, $15,000 that had already got their product built, that had already been designed, that already had some customers. And he was a software engineer and he could come in 
with a tremendous head start because, again, he had more money than he had time. And he used that to give himself a head start. And then he would like tinker and improve these projects and get them to the point where they were making him ten dollars or $20,000 a month in revenue. And then he used like that money to quit his job. And there's a lot of people I've talked to who've gone this path, but it's not nearly popular enough, in my opinion, because I think as a software engineer, like we kind of get giddy over the idea of like building our own projects from scratch. Like what engineer doesn't want to write the first lines of code to architect everything? Like it's so tempting to do it that way. One more tip I'll give is, is that if you want to go that route, which I think makes perfect sense, you can still do it on the side of your job if you are disciplined enough to shrink the scope of your ambitions to fit in the time that you have allotted. And so I always advocate people go kind of go like one level down. If you're thinking, oh, dang, like the thing I want to build, I just don't have time to do it on nights and weekends, then you should change your ambition level to, to build a project that like is literally just like a one weekend project. For example, Sahil Lavingia from Gumroad built Gumroad in a single weekend. He sat down on a Friday and on Monday morning, he clicked publish and there was Gumroad at the top of Hacker News and people were using it. And the project is like product is like largely that was the core of Gumroad. Like there's lots of bells and whistles today, and he has a whole team, but like that was the core and a weekend. And I've talked to lots of other people who've done weekend projects too. Or if you find yourself saying, okay, I have nights and weekends free, and that's fine, but I really want to build a project that takes even more than that. Like that's not enough. Well, then I think you should essentially shrink the scope of your ambitions to a project that can fit into nights and weekends. Do something that is much simpler, much more pared down. Like any hackers for me when I first started it was literally just an interview website. And the coder part of me was like, I want to build my own blogging system, my own blogging software. So I did that, but I could do that in nights and weekends over the course of like three weeks. It wasn't this crazy, ambitious SaaS app that had user accounts and password resets and all sorts of backend messenger queues. It was very, very simple. And so I think a lot of people kind of start too complex, but the developers I've seen who've succeeded just have a very simple app that does maybe one, two things well at most. And they're kind of embarrassed that it's not as complex and cool as it's going to be. But the flip side is they actually get their products out the door while being able to work on their job full time. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. I think it's actually really, really critical what you just nailed down, which is rather than saying how how the heck can I fit the side project into nights and weekends? It's, hey, you have nights and weekends. What can you build and only just nights and weekends or to your point in just one weekend, thank God for startup weekend. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, I think to your point, it's seemingly like a similar question, but they're actually very different. And that framework, that framework, and I think oftentimes developers, we like to work in different types of framework. If you can, if that doesn't change, if time doesn't change, what can you change? What kind of adjustments can you change to make it fit? And I think something that I really admire is having seen you built indie hackers from like a solo project and then growing it and scaling it and then actually eventually finding that right team to merge and come together and build on indie hackers together. And I'm referencing Stripe, right? So when there's so many other tech companies out there and knowing how do you add like coexist and add value together as an engineer, how did you find Stripe was the right team to join forces on to build indie hackers together? Total 100% blind luck. <laughs> I was not searching it out. It was not intentional. It just sort of fell into my lap. So I started indie hackers and I came up with the, the idea in July of 2016, like a three-day brainstorming session. Where I was like, I'm going to work on something. It needs to check all these boxes. It needs to be able to make money. It needs to be fun to work on. It needs to be social. I need to be able to code, to explain it to friends and family. It needs to be easy to market because I really hate marketing. So it needs to be something that's really simple. I like, you know, 10 or 15 items on my checklist. And after three days of brainstorming, I came up with the idea for Andy Hackers. And fast forward about eight or nine months, 
And it's like finally at the point where it's making me $7,000 a month in revenue. It's paying my rent. It's paying my bills. And I feel like I'm free. Like I've done it. You know, I can now do whatever I want. The world is my oyster, right? I can continue working on indie hackers. I can start a different project. But in a very meta sort of way, I, through starting indie hackers, became an indie hacker and was able to free myself up to do whatever I wanted. And right as I was trying to make that decision, I got an email from Patrick, the CEO of Stripe. Uh, the subject was acquire indie hackers. <laughs> and he was like, hey, what's up? Really been admiring what you've been up to with indie hackers. Any interest possibly and in maybe kind of sort of potentially working with Stripe on indie hackers? And at the time, like I getting acquired was not on my radar. Again, I was just thinking about freedom. I was thinking about like what I was going to do with this like newfound freedom I had where I could build and work on whatever I want from wherever I want with whoever I want. And the idea of like joining a bigger company felt like going in the opposite direction in a way where it's like, well, I'm going to have a boss and I'm going to have to like have a schedule and I'm going to have to work on what they tell me. Like, I don't know about that. And so I got brunch with Patrick and we talked and his vision and sort of priorities were basically the same as mine. He was like, I want indie hackers to be indie. I don't want to mess with the culture of your of your community. I don't want to mess with your working style. I don't want to mess with your goals and your ambitions. I just think it can be huge and it can be big. And if you're not focused 100% on like trying to keep the lights on, then like we can partner and build something great together. And so I thought that was really inspiring. And I thought also that like if you read like any of the Indie Hackers interviews of the people I, I interviewed about their successful companies and side projects, most of them are using Stripe. So it's like, okay, well, there's a lot of product fit. I think the missions align. Like what Stripe wants to do is promote the growth of the internet and e-commerce and have more people on the internet basically making money. <laughs> and what I want to do with Indie Hackers is inspire more developers who aren't really aware that like they can sit down and take their skill set to create a better life for themselves and sort of going through the rat race and working for the man. And so those really aligned. And it didn't feel like Stripe needed to do something different in order to make Indie Hackers fit. And it didn't feel like I needed to do anything different in order for Indie Hackers to sort of help Stripe achieve its goals. You know, the way that we kind of talked about it was that like Indie Hackers will inspire people to create great businesses. And then Stripe on its own, it's like their job kind of to make the product that Indie Hackers will choose. It's not my job to promote Stripe. It's not Stripe's job to promote Indie Hackers. And so in a way, they really were the perfect partner. And they've allowed me to run pretty much independently for the last 40 years since I joined. Well, that's really impressive. I think that to your point, if you are a developer and you want to build whatever your imagination allows you to do so, if there is a way you can bring value, even if regardless if they're a bigger team, but if you're able to come together and co-create together, that is such a different experience than just, hey, I'm going to build this. Can you acquire it? And then through acquisitions, things get gobbled up, tech stacks change. There's such a huge difference. And I think that with indie hackers, there's different types of executions and there's different types of ways you want to see your baby exist in this world. It can, it, to your point, it can get acquired. It, to your point, it can continue generating revenue. And then maybe you want to build something else. But I think the very rare occasions that I've seen is exactly this, where you are an indie hacker, you you build this tooling, this platform, this community, and then there's another team that says, hey, this is amazing. Let's come together rather than just, yeah, rather than any other option. And I think I'd love to hear your perspective on this, which is Stripe being a developer tool. I think there's many different types of developer tools. But I think that there's this piece that you kind of touch on, which is a storytelling component. I think with indie hackers, there's a storytelling component. With Stripe, there is a storytelling component. And so with developers, when we're building, how do we incorporate storytelling into the projects that we build? Because I think oftentimes I hear it is the Uber for this or or it is, hey, it's a dev tool for X, Y, and Z because I have such a hard, you know, when devs build other dev tools, 
sometimes the storytelling component is missing. So I just would love to hear like your experience through that. You can talk so much about story. First, I want to talk about what you mentioned earlier, which is kind of like finding these relationships and like whether or not the story lines up. This is kind of an aside, but I think it's very important if you're starting any sort of business. If you're trying to make anything for other people that you want them to pay for or to use, like I think it's important to understand the difference between the reality of the situation and the sort of agreement you're making with whether it's your, your customer or your acquirer or a partner or an investor or an employee, to understand like the nature of that agreement versus the story we sort of tell ourselves in society about that agreement. So like the way I look at things is like if you're an employee, you're making an agreement with your employer, right? You're basically saying like, I will come and do this work for you in return for money. And ideally, it's an equal agreement, right? Like in a way, as an employee, you're kind of the business offering your services and your employer is kind of your customer. And like the way the story we tell in society is no, like they own you, they're your employer, they can do whatever, but you can kind of do whatever you want. You can demand whatever you want, right? And every single thing you do as an employee is kind of the same way that you run a business. When you make a resume, like that's basically you doing marketing, saying here's all the services and here's why you should trust me and here's what I offer, right? When you shop that resume around and you're trying to negotiate you know, getting an offer at a company, like that's you doing sales. That's convincing people to buy your services. And so I think that a lot of people aren't aware of like the relationships they get into and they feel like a little bit disempowered. But if they understand like what they're going through and they don't buy too much into the story that society sort of told them, they can say, oh, this is an equal agreement. It's the same thing for having a company that you start that gets acquired. Joining Stripe for me wasn't like the outcome that I thought about when I started Indie Hackers. But going into that arrangement, I thought, okay, well, this is an agreement like any other agreement, right? I'm Stripe may be this huge, powerful company, and I may just be one person, but like, no one can force me to do something I don't want to do. I can sign any contract I want. I can negotiate for any terms I want. I can say I want this amount of freedom, X, Y, and Z, and I want these guarantees in place, and it's fine. And so I think people should think more about the fact that any agreement you come to, you can come to as an equal with your own demands. And if you're not coming as an equal, there might be a reason for that. The second part of your question, which is how story plays into business, I think is very important. Because we as human beings, we're all kind of the hero of our own story. Right. Like Sydney, you're like you wake up every day and you think about like, what am I going to do? Right. I'm going to work on my podcast. Here's what I'm going to do it. Here's what's important. Here's how that's going to change my life as a human being. And you're focused on your story more than any other human being on the planet is focused on your story. And that's true for everyone else. And I think the challenge when you start a company is you need to learn that no one else cares about your story that much. They care about themselves like they care about being the hero of their own story. And so whatever you're building, whether it's an app or a developer tool, you need to position yourself, I think the best analogy I've heard is, imagine that you are Yoda and your customers are Luke Skywalker. Like they are the hero, right? And so when you're talking, like sharing the story of your company, it's not about how big and great you are and all the challenges that you've been through. It's more so about understanding like your customers' challenges. What quest are they on? What challenges and obstacles are in their way? And how is your company or your product or your app going to give them superpowers and make them amazing so they can overcome their challenges? Like, how can you be this Yoda figure in your customers' lives? And so I think having that sort of mindset shift is sort of a revelation. And it can help you, I think, understand the role that your product plays in the story of everybody else's lives. That being said, like, there is a role for your own story as well. I think insofar as other people, your customers in particular, can identify with, like, the journey that you've gone through and the challenges that you've gone through, it really can be helpful to tell your story. It can be helpful. Like I tell my story on Indie Hackers all the time because I myself am an Indie Hacker. I talk about the struggles that I went through to come up with an idea. I talk about my goals and ambitions and dreams of freedom. I talk about exactly how much money I wanted to make and what that would allow me to buy, how much I could afford to basically spend based on my budget. Like I shared all those details because I knew that my customers, essentially my readers, were going through the same things. But again, that was because I wanted to have sort of 
a guide role, right? I wanted to say, okay, I'm an, I'm an example of you doing this as your guide, but you are really the hero. I'm only putting this information out there so that you can achieve success in your own story. And so that's the way I think about bringing storytelling to your business as a kind of a founder. Yeah. And I think to your point, it's, you even ended with story, bring the storytelling as a founder, it kind of goes beyond recognizing yourself as a developer. You are a developer and a founder and X, Y, and a storyteller, right? And I think that I'll speak for myself sometimes when either me or other peers, when we're building something, we're bringing something to fruition, we still think our, of ourselves as a developer. And when we're in that mindset, we forget to tell that story as well. And so I absolutely loved the positioning, the repositioning of rather than we are the heroes, rather than we are the badass developers who can make this, it's who are we serving and how do we make them the heroes? And us as guides or Yoda, I have not seen Star Wars, so I can't even, <laughs> like, I've been to the amusement park. But I think Yoda is a guide, right? He's Yeah, like, Yoda's he's a guide. Like, Luke Skywalker's yeah. the hero. You know, he's a little powerless in the beginning. He wants to take on the Empire. He wants to fight for freedom. But he doesn't have the power that he needs. And so Yoda, the guide character, and this is like every story archetype ever. There's always the hero who's trying to solve the problem themselves, and they can't quite solve it on their own, and so they need a guide. And I like your point that you were just making also about, like, just the terminology that we use to describe ourselves. Like, okay, if you're if you're going to make something that people want, again, you're not just a developer anymore, you're a founder. But even the word founder, I think, tends to put too much of the spotlight on us. It's like, I'm founding something. But it's like, it's not really about you, right? It's more like you're a problem solver. That's the way I like to see it. And if you can see yourself as a problem solver, it'll put everything into the right light. Like, what makes you successful? The extent to which you can solve somebody else's problem. The extent to which you can be Yoda and you can teach Luke Skywalker the Force and he now has these magical powers that he can use to combat evil. And if you're really good at that, people will love you. They'll talk about your customer, your company all the time. They'll be like, My, this company gave me superpowers. Look at this amazing design that I created because I used Photoshop. Or look at this amazing website that I built because I used VS Code and had all these great tools. Look how much faster I am, right? All of these products and, and companies that we love are literally giving us superpowers to solve our problems better. And so I think the way to look at things as a founder is really that you're just a problem solver. And that requires doing anything that the customer needs to solve their problem, not just building, not just developing, but whatever they need. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like in a way, almost shedding one specific identity and allowing the introduction of various identity to accomplish that main goal of problem solving. And this actually reminds me, and, and I really would love to explore this, which is you've spent a good portion of your career in Silicon Valley. And what I would like to kind of almost call it the heydays of Silicon Valley. You were at YC fairly early. You went through Silicon Valley in the years of, let's say 2014, 15. There was, those were kind of the early days of where you see Airbnb today, now public, DoorDash now public. And we actually spent similar times, like similar time frames in Silicon Valley. I was I was in SF for eight years and I remember oh, Product cool. Hunt. Yeah. I remember Product Hunt when Ryan Hoover was just making meetups. Like and that was just like that was the product. There was nothing else besides here's Product Hunt, the meetup. Right. And this was a long-winded way of saying tying this back into the identity of either founders or developers, we now see this transitional period in 2021 where now it's also content creators or creators, or I don't even know what the title is behind people launching things. Yeah. I don't even know what kind of question I'm at. I think, I hope you kind of get what I'm like. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like it's, vibing it's been a with. Transition. Yeah. So I guess 
my question to you is with maybe indie hackers or founders or developers or creators or influencers who are now launching things and then Alex O'Hannon is just like loving, loving them and throwing capital that way. What is this, I guess, transitional phase of the last really 10 years of developer, founder, creator, whatever, et cetera? I would say that the transitional phase has been 20 years. It's been 30 years. It's been, it's like I did Y Combinator in 2011. And you might say that was the heyday of YC. But back then we were like, ah, we missed the boat. Like the true heyday of YC, the true golden age was 2008. If you can go back then and talk to people back then, they'd probably say, ah, Silicon Valley isn't what it used to be. Like, you know, the true... Silicon Valley tech age was in the 90s. You know, you can keep going back and everyone feels like because this tide is always rising, because the wave is always getting bigger, everyone feels like the classic days are in the past, which I think is a good thing. But the reality is it's been a consistent trend of sort of the democratization of technology. More and more people becoming more and more able to use technology and do, I guess, be more productive, to have more leverage as an individual. So if you wanted to be an indie hacker in the 90s, it was really hard to do. It was extremely difficult to get a website online. Like the infrastructure just wasn't there. There was no AWS. The developer tools were pretty crappy. Hosting was expensive. The customers like weren't really there in the numbers that we're seeing today. People were skeptical about putting their credit card numbers online. Like Stripe wasn't even in beta until like 2011. Until then, it was like hard to even like collect customers' credit card numbers online. And so I think what we're seeing now with like the rise of the creators, which is basically just everyday people who might not even have the ability to code, who are still finding ways to build things online and put out whether it's content or even like little hacked together apps using no code tools and then identify customers and identify their problems and solve customers' problems in return for money. And like that's just, I think, the next evolution and the continued sort of onward march of the democratization of technology. And what's really beautiful and cool about it is it doesn't mean that there's no more need for software engineers. It doesn't mean that the programmers are now like old school and, you know, the everyday person is now supplanted programmers. It means just the opposite. It means that there are way more opportunities now than there ever were before for software engineers to like identify a problem that somebody has and help them out. For example, no code is huge. There's so many people who want to build apps online, but who've tried to learn how to code and have just given up. And they've turned to no code tools like Webflow and Airtable to just basically, and Zapier to like basically hack together little apps. But they're almost always missing something. They've got like some sort of gap. And so lots of software engineers are figuring out how to like plug these gaps. For example, I talked to Andre Asimov, who created a website called Sheet to Site. He's sort of an indie hacker who decided he wanted his own freedom. He wanted to you know, stop working for the man. And he wasn't even a developer, but he kind of learned to code and was very scrappy. And he noticed like one problem that lots of people had was they didn't know how to build a website. And yeah, there's like Wix and Weebly and Squarespace and all these different websites, but website builders, but like they weren't quite that good. And some people really were comfortable with spreadsheets. So he's like, what if you could turn a spreadsheet into a website? And so like a period of like a week, he hacked together a tool called Sheet to Site that if you put some you know, words in a spreadsheet, it would use the Google Docs API or whatever and translate that into a website, which is something that most software engineers could build. And not too long after that, he was making $20,000 a month from customers who needed websites but didn't know how to build websites. And so I think that this dawn of the creator, the dawn of the person who wants to be an internet entrepreneur but doesn't know how to code is awesome for indie hackers who do know how to code because these are your customers. These are people who need your skills, who need your tools, and who will feel supercharged and superpowered by your tools if you could sort of be the Yoda to their Luke Skywalker and give them the ability to do something awesome that they couldn't have done before. Wow. So it's not just building now developer tools, but now a phase where you're building tools for 
people or creators. Yeah, non-developers. Exactly. Yeah, developer I, I, tools I, for non-developers. Exactly. Building developer tools for non-developers. I mean, I feel like Canva was definitely a huge, huge aspect of that. Canva being the tool where I could not use Photoshop. I still couldn't figure out Photoshop, but now I can just drag and drop and I made, you know, like a, a logo finally, right? But I think that when it comes to this transitional piece, and I, and I love the journey that you took us through, which is we always think the generation before was the heyday, or we know that Silicon Valley has gone through transitions. I mean, I just have like a very like quick personal question. Like has creators and SF, have they mixed? Is it still kind of an LA thing? I've been out of SF and for a while now. So like, is SF vibing with creators or is it still your like, AKA YC founders? And like <laughs> it's still YC devs? founder, gotcha. tech founder, dominated in SF. I left last fall. <laughs> I was yeah. there for 10 years. I, I see a different background. Is it? Um, yeah, I'm right now in your Seattle. Kitchen? I don't know if you can see the space oh, needle from Oh, here. there you go. Uh, yeah, loving it. Oh, dang. I'm in like downtown Seattle now. But I will say that SF, for the longest time, like the broader tech community did not take the creator economy seriously. We sort of sort of sneered at influencers and people who were on YouTube and Instagram and Twitch making money that way and said, you know, that's not the real way to make money online. It's much better to start a company and to build the platforms that these creators operate on. And I think in recent, basically since the pandemic started, the tech industry has taken creators way more seriously. And part of that includes continuing to build platforms that creators use. You even see like Twitter, for example, they're introducing like payment features and introducing all sorts of different things for people who have Twitter accounts to own their audiences. But I've also seen a lot of my tech friends and startup friends who have basically become authors or you know writers and who've like started newsletters, who've started podcasts, who've started YouTube channels, who are basically sharing ideas, you know, and teaching other people. I think it's honestly it's one of the easiest possible ways to get started as an indie hacker is to teach people. And often that means being a creator. Like indie hackers in a way was an educational website. Sort of stereotypical way to teach people is to start a course or a newsletter or something like that. But like indie hackers is literally me just interviewing people on the website and then later on a podcast. And teaching other indie hackers who just were sort of a fly on the wall to those interviews, reading these discussions and learning how to build their own companies. That was an educational business. And I think educational businesses are awesome because there's so many people in the world who want to acquire skills and who know that if they learn whatever particular skill, whether it's learning how to code or learning how to market or learning how to start a company, that they can change their lives and make more money as a result. And if you want to educate them, like that makes you kind of a creator. You need to start some sort of content-based business to reach these people and teach them. And I think that can be very lucrative because people pay money to learn. And you don't even have to be a world-class expert. People generally want to learn from somebody who's one or two levels above them, not somebody who's 10 or 11 levels above them. If I want to learn chess, I'm not going to talk to a grandmaster. I'm going to talk to somebody who, who's been struggling with the same chess problems I was struggling with last week. It can tell me how they overcame that hurdle. Like a grandmaster is long since forgotten. And so that's pretty cool because it means there's a low barrier to entry. There's so many software engineers I know who are teaching absolute novices how to code. And yeah, maybe the teachers themselves aren't the best software engineers in the world, but like they have more than enough skills to help a novice get unstuck with the problems. And novices are more than willing to pay them 100 bucks for a course or 200 bucks for a course or something like that because it's still way cheaper than going to get a computer science education. Yeah, that's a really, really good perspective because I think that even if you are, just to your point, a few levels above, that is a closer gap rather than you and just the learning from the best software engineer in the world, that gap is just too wide. That gap is too wide and it's almost not acquirable. And acquisition or to what you said, the democratization to access creation has 
expedited not just products into the market, but expedited entering developers, creators, whatever you want to call it, just people being able to bring products to the market or even just ideations into the real world so much faster. So how do you prioritize the projects? Because not only do developers have ideas now, but even non-developers have ideas now. And at 2021, you can bring that to market much faster than, oh my gosh, back in 2013, where you're at a meetup and everyone's like, are you a developer? Is that a developer? All I want is a developer, right? So now it's a little bit changed, but I, I, you know, this was a long-winded way of saying, how do you prioritize the projects now that the democratization of access is now here? So, okay, it depends on what you mean by prioritization. Like you, Sydney, could sit down and think, I've got 15 things I want to work on. What am I going to work on, right? Which ones I'm going to do first? It could also be like, okay, choosing a market. You know, which market do you target? Do you target developers? Do you target people who are creators? Do you target like non-developers? So I guess the question I have for you is like, what do you mean by prioritization? Because at the end of the day, I'm very convicted that as an indie hacker, you should probably only work in one thing at a time. There's not that many hours in the day. You should keep it simple. But you should be judicious in choosing what you want to work on. Again, I spent literally three full days doing nothing but deciding what my idea was going to be because I'd had years of failed startups where I just threw caution to the wind and went with whatever my intuition told me rather than being a little bit more academic, a little bit more, I guess, strategic in picking a project that I want to work on. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I think that when you're a founder and you've had startups and you're like, all right, this doesn't work, this doesn't stick. And then you're with indie hackers, you're like, okay, I mean, was there a, an amount of like user validation that you had to go through or was it just like these fit the three pillars of values yeah. that you explained earlier? Because then sometimes yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah, sometimes you prioritize where it's just like, okay, this is, there's no market <laughs> demand for this. And then it, that tells you the priority. You know? Right. Yeah. I think I've seen stories from all over. It's very deceptive because there's a lot of stories you hear. Somebody who's like, I just thought this would be cool to build and I didn't do any market research and I built it and it worked. And like that, those are the most attractive stories because of course, like we want to do the same thing. But I think the denominator there that you don't see is all the people who tried that approach and like it didn't work. And they're not on podcasts sharing their stories. It just didn't work. And my experience, it does pay to be a little bit more judicious and strategic. And obviously the cool thing about having a career starting these like projects and side projects even if they fail, is you sort of learn lessons the hard way, but like the lasting way where you like, it's kind of like dating, you know, <laughs> after dating three or four people, you have a long list of like things you do and don't want in a partner. Same with starting startups. And so for me, I think validation is like, it's the big one, right? It's, it's basically this process of how do I make sure that if I'm going to commit months or years working on something that it's actually going to work, right? How do I like dip my toe in the water and see what temperature it is before I dive in full force? And here, as with every other part of being an indie hacker, I think you want to opt for efficiency. You're just one person, maybe two. And you don't have a lot of time. You don't have a lot of effort. Like you can't go into some like extremely intensive weeks-long validation process. You just don't have time for that. Like that's how big companies operate. But as like a small company, a small person, you got to be fast. And so one of the things you can do is you can basically look for things that have like already been validated. I'll give you an example. With indie hackers, my idea was basically I'm going to publish stories of people who are building businesses from scratch of developers who are making money from their side projects. And I'm going to have them share their revenue numbers and their entire story from start to beginning, you know, start to end, how they came up with the idea all the way to how much money they're making today, how they built a product, how they're hiring, et cetera. And I didn't have to validate that idea because it was already validated by Hacker News. I could go on Hacker News and I could see people upvoting these posts, upvoting these stories. I could see the exact questions they were asking and the information they were curious about. I could see which stories didn't get upvoted. I could look for patterns in the data and say, okay, 
this is something that people already want. And I think that's so much easier than trying to innovate something from scratch. <laughs> it's so hard to come up with a new idea from scratch that solves a problem that you're not even sure people have. You're not sure people will pay to have solved. It's way easier to solve problems that like people are already paying. In many cases, like the best businesses started by indie hackers I've talked to are businesses that are solving a problem that you would think was already solved, but they have their own twist on it. So for example, I was talking about education. I've interviewed at least a dozen indie hackers who are making a lot of money teaching people how to code. Guess what? Before any of them started their businesses, people were already learning how to code. Like the problem was validated. People have this problem, but that doesn't mean there's no new room for new entrants. Like people want to learn in different styles and want their own twist. Or a good friend of mine, Lynn Tai, she started a company called Key Values. It helps software engineers find jobs at companies. Guess what? Before Key Values existed, software engineers were already finding jobs at companies. But she put her own spin on it and it helps people find jobs at companies based on their values. You know, like, is this a company that likes pets? Is this a company that likes families? Is this a company that, like, works really hard or works not that hard? Like, she's got a list of, like, 50 different, like, intangible values that are important. And that's her own spin on it. And so I think I would prioritize by picking a pre-validated market, by picking a, a basically a problem that you already know people are paying to solve, ideally paying a lot of money to solve. Ideally, there's lots of competition in the space. It's not like some winner-take-all market like social networks. And so you know there's room for a new entrant and where you can come in and put your own fresh coat of paint on it and solve the problem in a slightly different way. You know, you make a website builder, but it builds a website from a spreadsheet instead of from a drag-and-drop website builder. And there will probably be a market for that problem because you've sort of pre-validated it and seen that others are already paying for it. Yeah, I never thought of it from that perspective of the key values example. The problem is companies have a hard time hiring developers and developers sometimes have a hard time with figuring out which team do I want to go to. Oftentimes you'd hear developer is constantly getting DMs from recruiters. So there's this like bandwidth constraint or analysis paralysis, right? So that pain point has always been there. And there can be a quote, simple website that launches, but there's a a tiny spin to it. And I, I remember key values. I also remember that episode, by the way. So it's, yeah, it's that's a really good point of, what is existing. And then there's no longer that AKA need necessarily for validation. And, and that speeds up, that speeds it up quickly. And sometimes, sometimes if you have a list of ideas, cause I know a lot of indie hackers, a lot of builders, a lot of developers, designers, creators, whatever you want to call them is that we have so many ideas. We have so many ideas, but one of the ways to prioritize is essentially what is going to stick. What And then how do we if not go to market faster, even just shed a few of the weeks, that would be the validation right. process. Yeah. Yeah. I love the constraint too of just giving yourself like a very small amount of time. We talked about this earlier, but like so many of the people I've talked to built businesses that took them like one or two weeks to launch. There's this guy, Peter Levels, who started Nomad List. He was a big inspiration to me. He started with this project he called 12 Startups in 12 Months. And every month he was going to do a new startup, which meant he had a month to come up with an idea to sketch out the designs, to build it, to launch it, and then market it and try to grow it, which meant he only really had like a week or so to build the project. He didn't allow himself to work on things that could take six weeks, six months, six years. And I see so many people get discouraged because they've been working and slogging on the same project for months. And I've been there myself. You know, before Indie Hackers, I had this app task force that I did Y Combinator with in 2011. And I just kind of kept it alive as a side project as I worked on other things. And it was just years and years of work trying to like catch up to like feature parity with these much bigger to-do list apps like Asana. And eventually I saw some other anti-hackers come up with new ideas and launch and start generating revenue and blow past me in the, like the span of like a month at a time. And I was like, you know what? I got to cut my losses and just start something new. 
And so that was one of my big constraints launching Indie Hackers. And I think it's a constraint that many people should embrace, which is like, what can I build in you know, just a couple of weeks? Because you're almost always going to underestimate. So if you think it's going to take you a couple of weeks, it might take you a couple of months. And that's fine. But you should start with like a very, very small constraint. Yeah. Start with a very specific constraint. And I think that when you have these guidelines, it allows you to, to, okay, I have these guidelines. What can I produce with the guidelines? And those constraints could be time. It could be capital. It could be even a technical stack. This actually reminds me, and I'd love to wrap up with this specific question, which is when you talk about these constraints, do you remember tech decks, Cortland? Tech decks, the little finger skateboards? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly what you're talking tech about. Tech decks, yeah. yeah, the little finger skateboards. And one of the constraints that I had as a kid was I didn't have any capital, aka I didn't have any allowance. So I couldn't buy a tech deck skate park to play with my skateboard. So I had to, <laughs> and I didn't know physics at the time. So I built my tech decks, my finger skateboard park with like construction paper and cardboard boxes. And you can't use a ramp with a piece of paper. That doesn't work. No, it doesn't but work. So the, but my question to you is, do you happen to remember, it could be a science project, it can be whatever it is, but when you were a kid, what was what was your indie hack as a kid? Was there something that you built, something that comes to mind? It could even just be a Halloween costume that you stitched together. I don't know. I remember we had a, we had a physics class in high school. Maybe I was in the 10th grade or 11th, and we had to build a bridge out of toothpicks. And a buddy of mine... And I, we spent, this wasn't like a big, it was like a kind of a fun project. It was not like, this is your grade in this class. It was like, you know, this is like 0.1% of your grade. But we spent weeks building bridges. We didn't just build one bridge. We built a lot of bridges. And then we tested them. And we had no idea what we were doing, right? Even physics class like, didn't teach us about like the tensile strengths of different bridge structures or whatever. But through trial and error, like we came up with some like really, really good bridge designs and we just smashed the competition. Like our bridge got old like 10 times as much weight as everybody else's through nothing other than like sheer effort and trial and error and just being willing to like start again 10 times. And in a way, like it doesn't seem like a hack because like hacks are usually, you know, meant to like save effort and make you more efficient and do less work. But it kind of was a hack where we made the trade-off of, okay, of we're not going to do less work. We're going to do more work, but we're going to get a better product at the end of the line. And we're not going to be smarter. We're not going to be cleverer. We're just literally going to do more work and try harder than everyone else. And that a lot of times will pay off. That's incredible. And I love that story because it really shines a light. I don't know if in 11th grade you knew you were going to be a software engineer, but you can tell by just the attention and obsession to the flow and the detail that you were going to become a hacker, a builder. You were already a hacker at that point. And so with that, Cortland Allen, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, Sydney, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. So what you just witnessed was a dream come true. Cortland Allen is a developer, a podcast host, the builder of Indie Hackers. And I have been following his journey since 2016. It is pretty nuts. And being able to interview him now, it's it's unreal. So I really appreciate those who have joined me on this journey so far as I've transitioned from becoming a developer into becoming a podcast host. And it is great to just speak with other developers to see what you've been building, how how you are making these ideas come to life. So for those who have been a part of this journey onto season three, thank you so much. I would ask, even if it's two people, two people, just share this episode with someone. Share this episode with someone because it really helps the ecosystem grow. We're able to come together and learn from each other and 
when there are more listeners of the podcast, more guests are, you know, they want to join. They want to join into the conversation. So I think it's just a really, really huge, amazing experience. And I just want to say thank you for those who have been a part of this journey. If you want to reach out to me, feel free to DM me on Twitter. My messages are open. If you have any questions or suggestions, you know how to reach me. And yeah, I welcome new ideas. I welcome new folks to be to be talking to. And what a fun episode. Definitely check out Cortland Allen and his work at Indie Hackers. I highly want to encourage y'all to go build something, build something amazing. If you are looking for help or other developers here at Out Systems, we have 300,000 developers in our ecosystem in the forums, we're really active. Devs are always building very, very quickly with our IDE and being able to launch a product either internally at a company or externally for fun. Come and join us. Thanks so much.